Hello, hello! Welcome to another episode of Just Two Dudes Reading Theory. I'm Chris. I'm Preston. And this week we are reading Anne Waters' essay, Language Matters, a metaphysic of non-discrete, non-binary dualism. Easy for me to say. <laughs> non-discrete, non-binary dualism. Alright, so these are a lot of fancy words, but they actually unpack relatively succinctly the the name's the hardest part it is about this this whole essay that we got into here is <laughs> you haven't seen the league have you no the <laughs> the mnd nbd <laughs> just real easy uh acronym there for you to keep track of that but i think the most important one is non-discrete versus discrete. And we're thinking this way of discrete as being separated and categorically separated. And so the discrete view comes from the Eurocentric Western colonizer of the person who has very rigid male and female categories that are also due to Christianity, not just like symbolic practices of a culture, they're sort of mistaken as, as like real features in the world. Yes. Um, if the, uh, so I like that she uses, you know, gender as kind of the, the vehicle to talk about, um, like the importance in the language and how pivotal it was to colonization was the destruction of the language and um yeah like with uh and it's funny i I remember coming across this i mean i see this argument all the time for like anti-trans rhetoric of like look i don't care you can do whatever you want but you don't just get to change the language one thing we've all agreed on is that language is the same everywhere it's the one universal that we have to agree on like i I don't think you understand how language works. Yeah, and I think <laughs> Ann Waters is a, is like a is like a left wing Heideggerian in a sense about language. You know, you got mm. these like she uses the phrase "being in the world" all the time in the essay. And I don't even know if she means it in the same way as Dasein from Heidegger, but there is a sense that you know you're growing up in language we use the phrase a lot, you know, nowadays, enculturates you. But also, you are, you know, the very Wittgenstein, the limits of your language aspect of this, which is that your language not only colonizes your thinking, I think we're pretty past that in our knowledge, like we can kind of take that as almost a bare fact, mm -hmm. but that it's so deceptive that until someone points it out to you, you might never actually notice that thing in the language was not a facet of reality. Oh, I mean, it ties right into the Rorty we read last time right. about like the vocabulary and everything. Um, and the like very static language yeah. of the metaphysician, which his definition of the metaphysician, I'd like to bracket that. Um, yeah, his, his, his yeah. what he's describing as the metaphysician here of like that very static language and mm -hmm. fits a bit with what Waters is talking about with like the Eurocentric language of like these very stiff, rigid labels that like, <laughs> every time I think of labels now, I always think of the Gary Larson cartoon of the farmer yeah. standing in front of the barn with like the bucket of paint and he's painted barn in big letters and like tractor yeah and it just says yeah. well that should clear a few things up around here yeah yeah it's, <laughs> it's the there's an aggressiveness of labeling we've got to know what it is we've got to put it in its box and i really like when she talks about how um how this the entire indigenous population with spain they had a trial to determine whether or not indigenous people had souls. Yeah. And then you get from that the the phrase, you know, kill the Indian, save the soul. Yes. And this this also is really important in a disc so what in, what implies 
sorry, what followed specifically from the Eurocentric discrete view of gender, but also race, is that it's kind of like everything is either bread or not bread in the entire universe. And the not bread, you really got to watch out for your you safety. <laughs> so like, with the, she points out that like entailing from a viewpoint that you're deciding on a fellow person if they're human or not, there are some preconditions to reaching that point. You don't just start the day off looking around going, let's decide who's who's human. But even more I mean, violent, and, and you could almost make an argument that you could do that on its own without um, genociding a bunch of genociding a bunch of people. But I think that where the differential factor there is when you have the Christian view, not at this point of manifest destiny, although of course that also was part of the Native American genocide. The idea that your God is not only the right God, but that is part of your maxim is to spread the word. Put those two together, and then that discreteness, it it becomes so important to survival, to be part of the the in crowd, <laughs> to be on the right side of the binary. <laughs> so I like the all bread versus not bread, because yeah. growing up, there was very much a... There's Mormons, there's LDS, there's us, yeah, and then there's everybody else. Like, it is it is very much a, there's bread and not bread. But, I'll give you a great example of how mm -hmm. discreet this, uh, you know, Christian view can be. Yeah. The uh, LDS religion, Native Americans are in fact originally white people. Right who migrated from the Isra Middle East, essentially. Yes, they, they were Jewish people that migrated after facing persecution here. Two of the brothers of this family were wicked and worshipped false idols. Yeah. And so God cursed them with red skin. Yeah, and uh, that's even worse it's... than deciding, because it's the perpetual decision of, no, you are not us. Well, until, if you're a good Mormon, when you get to heaven, guess what? Only natives. Everybody's <laughs> white up there. Oh, okay. The, they're, they're all white. <laughs> I was thinking... You'll be cured of your curse <laughs> when you get up there. It is... It's, it's taking the labels even farther. Like, I mean, it's... Oh, yeah, it's horrible. The Eurocentric, you know, view of, you know, non-white, non-Christian people was bad enough. But, like, this belief system of God told me where everybody else came from and we were all originally white, which is historically and... You know, from what we've learned is not remotely true. Like, no, I mean, obviously, not, not, no, this is all not, just not theological close. farting around. Silly <laughs> bullshit. Well, I think, so, the alternative to that, and this reaches, um, combines both non-discrete, which, and, and her term, which she's using non-binary, which she also puts as complementary dualism. She says, I really liked uh, that. Too. Yeah. That, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. A non-binary complementary dualism would place the two constructs together in such a way that one would remain itself and also be a part of the other. So this is more, this is more, this is weird. It reminds me of Voltaire's work on multiplicity where if I remember right, he makes the argument that. You know, if you have, if you have a society where you have two main religious groups, it's it's just going to be bad, and it's not just going to be bad. It's going to be perpetual strife between the minority and the majority. So, uh, the Hutus and the Tutsis, the two, the Sunnis and the Shiites. I mean, you know, like like whatever you want. The Israel and Palestine. The 
then yeah, or or the biggest one in the world, the Protestants and the Catholics. You know, like and they're and they're part of the same, somewhat similar header faith. But so he advocated more for a multiplicity, where it's like okay, so if you have a multiplicity of beliefs, or you have more than one, you can't establish a religious hierarchy in the same way. And I think that's actually maps onto what Ann Waters is talking about in a nice way, because like, look, if we have a system where we have two factions, already we've set it up as discrete. Mm. They're not overlapping, but they're forced to live together. Yes. We're know? in the, the binary that will mm -hmm. inherently create a good and an evil based upon the two groups. I mean, that's... I. I liked when uh, Waters dived into the inherent tendency of the discrete binary yeah. function of language to inherently other groups, traits, all these things yeah. just by specifically labeling them as separate. Well, and I also think that, like, I mean, this, I guess, in a certain bastardized way comes from Hegel, but when... <laughs> I remember this really wild talk Jordan Peterson gave once where it was like, look, if you don't see your fellow man... you got to say it like a muppet. If you, do, if you do Jordan Peterson... You can't do it. you got to do it like size a really up. haggard Kermit the you're Frog. Gonna, you're going to size him up. you got to decide if you're going to fight that man. Do <laughs> 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 you remember that? And so it's like, the idea is that like you see the other person and for Jordan Peterson, I mean, he's super non-consistent, but like the the implicit view is that every other is primarily a source of ambiguity based on if you can take them which is sort of weirdly similar to Hegel's master slave dialectic but it's much dumber i think um cuz i don't think he's very smart personally it's, but like i think it's that that's like guerrilla logic it's guerrilla logic but it also is <laughs> I mean, doesn't that stem exactly from a discrete view of your fellow object? Like everyone, I, humans, I mean, peoples, animals, you know, it's like... I you... think people like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate are like the textbook definition of people trying to bring back heavily discrete binary language that is aggressively yes or no. Uh, and the no is not no... No, thank you. I don't want the tea. It the is, no is, now I kill you. It's evil. <laughs> yeah, the it's no evil, inherently becomes evil, bad, which, wrong. Which is not... It doesn't really follow. You know, you can have a lot of yes and no's, and the level of violence that the no follows from colonialism is shockingly no. It's like, it's not just no, it's always a Roman no. Mm. you know dead it's it's not yes you live it's not it's not yes i eat the cake no i don't eat the cake it's yes you live and no you die so <laughs> always that's the that's always at stake the, i like the simplest view, which is sad oh, sorry yeah the, go for it no the simplest example i can think of to like separate like the discrete versus non-discrete is think about a villain in your fictional story, movie, anything like that. Mm -hmm. What do you find more interesting? The the villain that's evil because he's bad and other and spooky colors and such. Or, you know... The evil has got your, a point. Your villain in Black Panther. Killmonger kind of has a point. Yeah. They're, like, the villains that aren't just bad it's the overlap that makes an interesting character yeah because i think it's a lot more relevant to the human experience and the very aggressively binary language just doesn't work yeah i mean shit i think that's a huge source of all that religious guilt involved with with christianity is this like it's good or it's a sin. You're either doing good or you're doing evil. Yeah, it's never it's never um, value neutral in that sense. I mean, and uh, so Ann Waters says, and this is about the the Spanish when they invaded. Um, 
Simultaneously, the Spanish conquistadors in what was to become Mexico and South America acted on similar constructs of indigenous people who were seen as other, which meant not human in the gaze of the Spanish. Hmm. And I think that that um, that ties in to what we're saying pretty exactly. But yep. even, it goes even further. So so then, then Ann Waters, a little bit further down the page, does something which I really like, which is she reminds me of Julia Kristeva a little, which is like in the gaze of the European colonialist, the good is is masculine and the bad is is feminine. And so she ties that in with this great little bit, which literally could have been written by Kristeva, right? Um, the Eurocentric ontological depiction of a disconnected, bounded, rational, cultured male father creator of the universe stood in antithesis to what was seen as eurocentrically as an unrestrained unbounded irrational raw female mother nature destroyer of the universe mother nature destroyer of the universe is the biggest fucking oxymoron like it well yeah because she mentions it in the way that she would prefer earlier where she mentions Mother Earth in the indigenous view. Yeah, like I... Which has really nothing to do with that at all. <laughs> but I, I also like... Which is more of a god, and not like a... Chasm in the yes. coming to fight. And you know, all order is symbolic and rational, and all disorder is the primal mother. And it's like, I mean, I think that's great. I also think that like when she's talking about this, I think that... We've sort of flipped the narrative now. I think I don't think this is too, totally at stake anymore with um, with native peoples. Like I don't get the same signification anymore. I think movies like Fern Gully and the Pan, you know, what's it, the Unobtainium thing, uh, Avatar. You know, because like okay, in Avatar, it's like the natives are the natives, right? They're just native people. And it dances with wolves. It dances with it wolves. Dances they're just, just native people, you know. And so I think that's loaded the culture with now this idea that everything slipped around. No, the feminine, quote air quotes, of course, is now where we're going to look for some secret unity of the universe. Which I also like. Anne Waters kind of. Uh dismantles the second wave feminist idea that like native americans were this matriarchal focused society that you know women were the center um but uh let's see yeah and this Brock one she does a great, great job point um, with this what she one, one thing i'm just i wanted to keep going but i mean oh, no. she um really breaks it down where at this level is where native peoples are plural. You know, at the nation-to-nation level, it's not the same. Yeah, <laughs> it's not so the same concept. It's not this, the same ontology. This, yes. Which, by the way, I liked that you used um, Ann Waters as, like, left-wing Heidegger. Because I don't think I've seen ontology in a paper as many times since reading Heidegger. That's, uh... Yeah, we're doing native it, ontology, man. A lot man. of it, which this, uh, I I like that she uses this as a launching point to talk about how um, that doesn't really work because you're yeah. still applying the discrete binary Eurocentric language to tribes that likely had a very different perception of what female versus male even was. Yeah, and it is drastically <laughs> more complex and fuzzier than than we than, can, yeah. than how we're uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for uh, like fantasizing it. Um, oh yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of fantasies about natives. I mean, I mean, I think one of the biggest fantasy constructions, which is just sort of, I mean, I remember as a kid, the first time I read "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee" was the first text that's helped me kind of dismantle that like figure of the native american mm. because the figure of the native american is in american culture a plains tribe warrior <laughs> right like it's just that figure they it's know how dude. to track and they're one with the land <laughs> and they they fight and then but then like also like when you read it you're like oh wait a minute that was this is a great point from zizek right is like is like all of the crises you see as happening between binaries that are big are actually in 
crises that are happening within those binaries. Mm. So, like, well, yeah, some of the tribes were violent and were warring tribes. Other tribes were peaceful. They run the gamut. A lot of people here we're talking about, you know? A lot of people uh, were not. And it's the same as uh, a European fiefdom in that way, where it's like, well, yeah, like some some places are uber warrior class and this goes way back like the difference between spartan and athens and we would just say it's you can't just say greece it's kind of amazing to me and they're like oh yeah they were very violent warring tribes like really england really france england how how long did you two just do dick measuring contests yeah, how many Throughout total history? people have died in wars between just like, those two places? Uh, <laughs> I, the logic there, and it's just, I don't know, doesn't really track, but they had armor on, so it's different. <laughs> armor, yeah, right. Well, I think, like, um, one of the things that is important in this essay that I think is also important from VF Cordova is the view that culture isn't static. So like, I think one of Van Water's biggest points is that any people, group of people that you talk about that are a part of the native American diaspora are their culture is mediated through the genocide. Hmm. You know, there's no pristine thing to go back to. And that also cuts through one of the Western stereotypes of natives. That's one. It's like, well, the culture now is active and moving, but it is change. I don't want to even, I feel like Ann Waters, this is actually one bone I have a pick with her, where she kind of talks about like, I think certain other Native American thinkers will hit on would maybe pick a bone with her about talking about some of the ways she talks about it hint at golden era thinking like we used to have a non-discrete view but now everything is broken and we're in the fractured world after genocide and i think some of that might be true but i also think that there's been a lot of revitalization of different cultures i think she kind of mentions that it's like making a comeback yeah towards the end of it that it's that these secrets of the language from before it was, you know, colonized, turned into binary and all that is, um, starting to come back. And she had had mentioned, Mm -hmm. um, but I don't, it's, uh, it's just one of those things that, you know, I think that I'm just under read on because I, and also not just being under read, like I, I have no personal experience that is remotely relevant to, like, that shift for Mm. them. Well, yeah, I mean, on the other hand, like, the narrative of the LDS church as a persecuted people, one of the weird things about it is that it... um, Like, one of the things I think that's nice about Ann Waters is, like, I think she would say that us versus them is discreet from the Europeans in a sort of Orientalist way. Like, not Orientalist, but, like, in that sort of Edward Said way where it's like, oh, that narrative of us versus them would be then seen as maybe a native taking back their land to win as the us tribe. But Ann Waters is trying to frame... That not as a battleground anymore. Mm. You know, like she never right. uses battle language. No. You know, and, and we, that's... and I mean, look at, I mean, Nietzsche, you know, it's like it's just all battle language, right? And it's like she never uses any battle metaphors. I did, I'm just like thinking back to the, the last one we read too, Cordova's. Yeah. Like it's, there's like that, that's a huge distinction. In the writing mm-hmm. of stuff that we've read that, like, I had not yeah. noticed till you pointed that out. I was like, oh, it's... Both of these have been very non-aggressive. Yeah. And, and a non... So then you get into a point where... So rhetoric is inherently in a, viewed in, in the West as, like, a battleground. Like, I'm going to bring my point, you're going to bring your point, and we're going to fight it out in the battleground of ideas, and someone's going to win the debate. 
through using you know, logic. Which, and I, I think, I think we've reached the ultimate that. pinnacle of that in like online interactions where we've oh my god we've lost <laughs> the ability to have a discussion to grow ideas yeah and alter our final vocabulary grow it if you will yeah um, and instead it all like especially political discussions is no longer about actually discussing politics it's a contest to own the other side right i mean and that's true of debate culture like if you watch debates between like matt dillahunty debated peterson and like sam harris and the the atheist group like they're always doing debates but like there's a, a high degree of repetition because if you make your rhetorical point that you land on that's a really good point it's kind of similar to a final vocabulary like you're going to make that point again and again mm. and like i think that like ann waters would say that the true eurocentric debate format would be then everyone is murdered <laughs> you know like right like the loser it's like nay and then like it's like not only they get shunned out of town tarred and feathered and then just murdered and dismembered and their part body parts are spread throughout the galaxy because it was a no so it's a no forever <laughs> oh i'm wearing okay so uh, for everyone watching i'm wearing this really silly shirt it says no Period. Period. That's <laughs> all it says. Forever. That's the end. No. <laughs> yeah. So, I loved um, another thread between VF Cordova and Ann Waters is they like stories. There's a there's a shift from rhetoric to storytelling in the, stories. you know, and so she tells the story of Plato, and she tells her kind of weird kind of sus version of that story to me sorry we've had some we should read plato because we've had a I lot mean, of sus read, plato we read stories. the one play i mean we didn't read the plato for this though no. we just read that the um but there isn't any theory of forms in there but for for um for waters the theory of forms is that the the true world is sort of the beyond the um static world of forms which is connotated as masculine and this becomes christian in the sense that you don't reach the pure world of forms in this reality you reach it in heaven so we're because we're in a fallen world and that that's how she transposes that to christianity um but she does it as a story you know it's 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 more similar to the continental thinkers we've been reading than an analytic argument it's more of a and then she goes even further by not giving just a personal anecdote that you'd find in a pedagogy paper, she tells the story of her pedagogical development. Uh, you know? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a sucker for a story, so I kind of really like that. I mean, if you can't tell, a good way of connecting a lot of these ideas for me is to tie them into stories and relevant things that yeah. edge me a little bit closer to understanding these concepts. I'm just trying to use a little bit of familiarity in this grasping out in this dark world of theory here. No, I think, and I think it's nice. I just think that, um, so for Cardova, it was about telling her story in the eye. So like, and the, she made the argument from her perspective and there was that cut, right? Where it was like all argument and then her viewpoint presented almost as more of a, a, a preaching moment. And I think that for Waters, that becomes anecdotally relevant. You know, I mean, she talks about it for like, yeah, two pages, um, talking about teaching logic to Native students. And she talks about how she taught logic for years. You know, she's a professional philosopher. And then she realized she had to include relevant stories and examples from the culture and then she also made a great point about teaching formal logic as um an analogy to computers mm, which was great uh. Uh, and full disclosure for everyone watching you can probably tell by the examples we've used but i have absolutely no background in anything logic no formal logic training whatsoever so everything we say here will be sus and i'm also going to include you maybe <laughs> absolutely um 
I do think it was kind of interesting that she also mentions the, like, pressure to excel in logic when pursuing philosophy at, you know, college Mm -hmm. level. Um, Which is why, you know, she felt this need to, you know, get a hold of all this logic stuff. Yeah. And that, you know, led her to seeing that, like... There's a large amount of indigenous people that are dropping this class. Yes. You know, not taking a part in it. Um, And I like that she mentions uh, deep structures of indigenous thinking about ontological relations in the world conflicted with the discrete binary logic inherent in Euro-American reflection about relations in the world. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, what she's not saying is that logic is false or something. That would be insane. What she's saying is that, like, the metaphors we use to teach something aren't always going to work for every student of every background. It's like translating anime. Oh, yeah? It doesn't always work. No. Like, it, that, that, that's another example of, like, how language is... There is inherently a separation to where, you know words that don't translate over to Japan, there's a separate part of the language in how you japanese a size. Ja- yeah. I don't know how to say that. Well, like, one example is in the history of translating haiku. So, it used to be, like, in the 19th century, translations of haiku were really long. It'd be, like, a paragraph. Because they were trying to get everything in that the language was saying and now more of the standard translations what's now shifted as essentially important is instead the idea that you're you're going to fail at that first of all but second of all that what's more important is is getting the image and the cut and the metrics in a certain sense you know it's important that they're short one thing that hasn't brought over from haiku, which is really interesting, that uh, we always think of haiku or taught it in school and everything is sort of like you get a couple haiku. You, you write some haikus and they're all different, but they would actually compose haiku chains. So you'd write a haiku, someone would respond, and you do like a conversation in haiku. Oh, that's cool. Which is a lot more interesting than just these standalone freeform objects. The in five, seven, sense. five. Yeah, just chains of five, seven, five. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I love... Um, uh, who wrote Native Son? Uh, Richard, um, one of the great American haiku writers, was Richard Wright. There we go. Um, and he does not chains. He does discrete five seven five, very, very classically English versions of haiku. But yeah, no, I think I think you're right. Sorry, that was a tangent. Uh, I just love haiku. <laughs> same idea though is like mm-hmm. the uh, like. The inherent, like, language and the, uh, I don't know if I'd still call it logic, but, like, the the reasoning of things. I mean, for example, mm-hmm. you know, Christian Mormon belief, it's very binary. There is truth and there is wrong. It is, it is very black and white. And so I think for people born and raised in that for generations... I think I'd see a similar difficulty in seeing logic that isn't on and off. Ones yeah. and zeros. Well, I mean, and we're kind of talking about this with Heidegger. Here's the quote where I just wrote, that sounds like left-wing Heidegger. Go for it. Open your beer. <laughs> we're having beers. All right. So, he sa- she says... Uh, Loss of language meaning is a loss of conceptual ontology. It is a loss of a way of being in the world. And, like, the reason why I think it's a left-wing Heidegger point is because I think that right-wing Heidegger remains in the battlegrounds of culture. Like, they would accept all of that and probably be like, because the better culture won. (laughs) Or some stupid thing. (laughs) You know, and in in Heidegger's case, it'd be because Germany has just that betterness that quality uh, that specific quality of me having to be a part of it yeah. <laughs> whereas like for ann waters 
there is no othering language towards another culture's way of being. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've been saying this for a long time, which is that I feel, I still think in America, most people view culture as, like, the quote from World War II. I forgot who said it, which is, like, you know, it might be a fake quote, but, like, as soon as I hear culture, I reach for my revolver. <laughs> which Missions of Burma did in their song. I forget the song, but it's, like, reach for my revolver. I don't know. It's a good song. Um, but yeah, like the, when you think about it as a battleground, that's a metaphor. That's something you're laying on top of it. Whereas you can have cultural difference without violence, in my opinion. And the proof is just growing up. Isn't that <laughs> like, what Schoolhouse Rock was trying to sell us with the great melting pot? I mean, growing up, I thought that was like... One of the things they drill into as a great part of America is this this great cultural melting pot of ideas and everything. And it doesn't feel so much that way lately. It doesn't feel that way. It feels more like the battleground view. It, it's of very the... battlegroundy. And I I don't know. It sometimes I feel like you grew up in an imaginary neighborhood and then one day I'll learn way later that you grew up in some horrible oppressed environment <laughs> no, I and you had to create lovely... this fantastic lovely narrative where i had all of these great different diverse neighbors who taught me all these great things so when that... you were just surrounded by skinheads who beat the shit out of you every day so the the joke preston's talking about is so in my neighborhood growing up it was i didn't grow up in utah i grew up in michigan and in my neighborhood the closest kid my age in my neighborhood was an immigrant family from Taiwan. Lovely kid. We hung out a ton named Boris. And then there was a bunch of other. So then the two people nearest him were Catholic, one white and one black. And then one of my best friends as a kid, Sean, lived down a couple blocks away. And he came from a Muslim background. And then another kid two blocks away, was we also hung out all the time, was from Ethiopia. And so like... That's kind of a culture shock coming to Utah. My entire street. Because there wasn't that at all. We had one non-Mormon person on our street. And for most of growing up, like, probably 99% of my neighborhood was just white. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think that's a different, it's a different world. Because what you have is a nested minority, because, like, in the culture at whole, as, like, in all of the United States, Mormonism is one minority group among many. But yet in Utah, it's the Vatican of Mormonism. So it's like, well, then it suddenly flips, and it's, it's a Mormon country. And at times they tried to actually be their own country. This is true. <clears throat> I mean, I remember when um, this kid moved into our ward from back east. Yeah. And he was, like, the nicest, coolest Mormon kid I'd ever met because he didn't grow up thinking he was better than everybody else in his neighborhood because he was the only Mormon in his neighborhood. So I just, you... Yeah. You get a little bit of a different perspective there when it's, you know... It's a different you're culture. the othered one. Yeah, because it's... I mean, it's a weird little uh, vacuum here in Utah. And, I mean, even Salt Lake's not as bad. It's kind of no, a, no. a bit of a liberal stronghold. It's it's Utah's Austin. It is. It is. Whereas, I mean, the farther you get from Salt Lake, aggressively more conservative and more red, more Mormon. I mean, there's whole towns that it's... Well, there's whole towns in Utah that are just... The only building is the church for the farmers to go to. Yep. Yeah. So I think for our ending couple minutes here, I was wondering if we wanted to talk about some of the examples of gender that Ann Waters gives us, which oh, I thought I were really cool. To. So one of the stories that she tells is about the Chippewaians. And one of the examples she gives is that the Chippewaians do not distinguish between physical and supernatural causality. Cause and effect are inkose. It's a Chippewaian concept that describes the collective knowledge of supernatural causality. This is relevant because males have to get it. They aren't born with it. Our, our little uh, Deleuze and Guattari here. Gender becomes 
Yeah. We are becoming the gender. Yeah. Which I, I don't know, I kind of loved this. Because this, mm-hmm. is, this is what she segued into after talking about how, you know, it's, it's not that, you know, these indigenous tribes were matriarch, you know, matriarchal societies where women mm-hmm. ruled. That's, it's a little bit more complex than that let me give you some examples of how your view of gender and it it doesn't quite line up yeah here so the that first one was one of my favorites the becoming one was really cool i like the uh it's it's the chippewa is that the right way to pronounce that one but i'm not sure i might be saying it wrong but yeah yeah she writes uh males must achieve the status of maleness by attaining in they do say by displaying behavior appropriate to having the knowledge of Inkose. So it's, and she writes in the really kind of Judith Butler way, having Inkose is to attain respect. It is achieved via performance. Yes, male and female cannot be presumed. The nature of the cause and effect between adult child may be the equivalent to gender classification. It is something one attains. It's like a child becomes an adult. Yeah. One becomes their their gender I, I thought that cool concept I, I thought that was really interesting yeah and and then there's a difference between uh, AFAB and AMAP people so because women already have respect and status ascribed via teaching skills women do not need to perform in order to, to attain in Kose in some sharp ties to show this is a theorist she's relying on sharp tries to show how gender relevancy can be interculture context laden. And I think it's a good point, you know, and I think I think this ties in a lot to the way I want and a lot of us on the left want to change view of gender in America. You know, as a as a performative, I mean as a way of being in the world that you become as you grow up instead of something you're confined to at birth. Mm. So one thing I'd like to look into a little more that I find to be really interesting with like the language and gender is um, the Finnish language is ungendered. Yeah. There's n- there, there isn't he and she. It's all... <clears throat> It's all they. There's there's yeah. just collective pronoun. Yeah. Which I find to be fascinating because I know nothing about like their gender structures though. No. It's kind of sad. They are Scandinavian. I should know more about the areas I actually come from. No, I mean if but... you want to. So I have an example to steal Manny a little bit here. So Mari Rudy is Finnish. And she wrote a book called Penis Envy, which I recommend to everybody listening. And she mentions how... Um, I don't know that, that that was a Finnish writer. Yeah, she's a Finnish writer. That's, that's very And she sadly just died. She died last year of cancer. I know. I'm so sorry. Is there, is there anybody else you want to get me excited about and then be like, and they're dead? Nietzsche's dead. <laughs> no! The, not the Uberman! <laughs> he's, he's dead. No! <laughs> um, so, uh, Rorty's dead. Derrida's dead. I'm alive. Okay, sorry, moving forward, I think. At least we ended on a bright note. Um, no, like, so she says that she was shocked when she came to America because apparently in Finland, according to Mari Rudy, like, gender roles were less essentialist. So she would fix the car. And when the dad taught her to fix the car, it's just, you go fix the car. You're, you're here and you're a body. And we need the car fixed. And so she said, like, there's this anxiety of, like, I think she recounts a memory of like traveling with a boyfriend to change a flat tire or something and how in America the woman changing the flat tire is viewed as a failure on the man instead of just well that person knows how to fucking do it (laughs) so let's let them change the tire (laughs) I mean it's even though I'm like trying to avoid these things they're still like you know if Kari happens to grab more of the grocery bags than me when we're walking out to the car, I have those moments of like, 
kind of feel like an asshole right now. Shouldn't I have more of those? Well, that's and that's <laughs> isn't that that's one of Zizek's great points is that ideology functions even if you don't believe in it. So like Whoa. you don't believe in this gender binary and these performative roles that are essentialist, and yet you still have the anxiety as if you did. I don't know. I mean, I Which just I don't do too. Like I mean, deal same with thing. someone being like, "Yeah, nice asshole, make your wife carry the groceries." But like, yeah, like if I broke no, my she's hands, a strong woman who don't need no man. I would take it even further. If I broke both my hands and they were in casts, I would still feel looked at if Anna carried the groceries. Hook them on me. Ho- 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 just hook them on there. <laughs> yeah, I know, and and then that's silly. But it also gives you a way out, because once you point it out, then you can start to dismantle it. Now but I'm going to make Kari carry all the groceries, and I'm going to hop on her back. Yeah. Give everybody the finger as we head out to the car. When I wear more flamboyant clothes, people don't know what to what that signifies anymore. Like, if I wear a bright floral Miyazaki button-up with the bright orange coat, um, and then I say partner at the bookstore... Instead of wife, anyone over fifty assumes I'm an I'm a gay man, and it's great. I mean, I've, I've, <laughs> but when I started dress changing from, I used to dress very music techy, you know, like black t-shirts and jeans. I still, I mean, that's what I'm doing right now. But <laughs> like, but when I go out and I work and I work at the bookstore, I wear very very flamboyant clothes, and the change in that has been that I I do lose a little of that. Well, I know this is just a construct, but does the chicken know? You know, does the other person know? Because if someone doesn't know know what to signify when they look at me, I feel more free Mm. to not have the anxiety of performing as a man. It's a good feeling. Long hair probably does that a little, right? Preston has very long hair. Flowing, beautiful hair. I... (laughs) Working in retail, I just, it was always fun to see the different reactions of the, um, I mean, I got to to the point where, like, you can tell when people are, like, talking to you. I would just turn around when people would say, excuse me, ma'am. Just because it... Yeah, from behind. I get it. I'm skinny. I got pretty good looking hair for for a long-haired, leaping gnome. (laughs) Um, But... The reaction of people that went from, like, apologetic horror that they made the mistake to, uh, oh, this is A-trained. So the old people, you really should cut your hair. Heard that about a billion times from people who didn't want to acknowledge the embarrassment of misgendering when I can't give a shit. The uber apologetic people were almost as annoying because they, like, wouldn't let it go. I'm just so sorry. It's fine. It happens all the time. I just, I know, I am just so sorry. I just, I, 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 it is so embarrassing. I'm like, it's, you're making it embarrassing. Like it's. Well, and I think, and everything, I think every, all of our stories this week are illustrating our own attempts to escape discrete dualities, right? Like there's, there's a way in which we know that's not what I am. And then you reach the social sphere and then there's issues, obviously. I One more story on this to illustrate our own attempts to achieve Ann Waters' dream in this essay. That is, is, is more, I mean, obviously this is about native ontology, but I think there's also a shift happening in white culture as well and the culture as a whole, which I think is positive in the same direction that Ann Waters is talking about. So Anna is non-binary AFAB, which for those listening means assigned female at birth, but they have really short hair. They they dress and is more like masculine attire a lot of the time. So like two stories where people will leap to anything except these people aren't fitting this dualism. So the one in the old neighborhood was every single day on and I would walk during the pandemic. And I finally ran into this lady and she was like, oh, I thought that was your brother. Uh, there, no, I thought you were, no, I, no, she didn't think we were, she, she said, I thought you were brother and sister. So this lady didn't even make the gender leap, but bypassed the obvious, which is that we're together. The other one is that my next door neighbor said, 
oh, is this your brother? As I'm confusing two stories to, to Anna and I was walking by and I was like, no, this is my partner. And then he was really taken aback and he went, oh my God, I'm so sorry, ma'am. I'm so sorry. This really over apologetic thing. But Anna took it as a win for the category of being non-binary because the man just didn't have that. There, that wasn't an option to go through in the language toolbox for him. So it was either <laughs> this is a man or I'm just wrong. <laughs> because they didn't have, he didn't clearly know that there are non-binary people out in the world. So that was great. I, I mean, I, that's, you know, so that's just more examples of that in the social sphere, right? Yeah, I think it's a great example of it. And I, I don't know, I like the idea that you know, the non-binary movement, I think, is very much moving us in the right direction. Right. Because, I don't know, I think the disillusion of gender roles just makes life a lot more enjoyable. I would also say, I mean, I mean yes, first of all. I just... It just makes me, makes me feel a lot better. I just... A lot more relaxed in the social sphere if I don't have the this big other pressure of manliness on me. I hate to break it to all you people clinging to your masculinity or whatnot but the grass is greener on the other side it's a lot more fun and i still think i'm going through those dismantling process i don't think it's like a it's no too, question. it's too big i mean it's too ingrained in the culture that you have certain responsibilities as a man um okay wait before we go can we do one more story from the so and i love this um so she talks about the Taino peoples, which at one time were from the southeastern United States. So they have rights for girls and boys upon attaining puberty. They generously grant young adults an autonomous option of gender selection. So then you get manly-hearted women among the Blackfoot and then the Nadley of the Southwest. And then the one further thing in Dene thought the Nadley remains a mixed gender status. The hermaphrodite of mythic trickster and creator, highly coveted and always treated with respectful awe. That sounds pretty good. Fucking <laughs> loved that. That's cool. I <laughs> thought that, that sounds was like amazing. A amazing. Yes. And I, I, there's a lot of uh, like, you know, older literature that plays with this stuff and like one of the most recent ones was the the sandman graphic novels oh they're great love that desire is as fuzzy as it gets like they are like the uh epitome of not like non-binary essentially it is i mean the artwork that they use for it is so good at like depiction depicting this this flow between it but there there's been a lot of characters like this historically that are well-received characters within like the mythos of the story yeah these these in-between characters and i don't know it's just kind of weird to see such a big pushback on it here this this clutching of the pearls to our gender roles (laughs) it's like i don't know i think it I just... I don't think many of those people are reading Sandman. <laughs> I don't think Neil yeah, Gaiman is high on the reading list. Fair enough. <laughs> but even in, like, weird Christian mythology stuff that, you know, obviously Mormonism doesn't bind the, like, Nephilim and all that yeah. weird mythology stuff, there's a lot of non-binary shit mixed into that, too. Yeah, and I just, I just wonder if... Um... That I think I think we're gonna revisit this a lot when we get to talking about Lacan on sex and sexuation. He has these formulas of mm. sexuation, which are of course he does, and they're horrible to look at, but they're really interesting. And I think that like he's gonna have incredible limitations, being very obviously he's French, and and there's a certain you but can he argue was very popular with the women. Remember? Oh, from our la- yeah, from our mirror stage, <laughs> popular with the women. But I think he also is going to be vaguely on the side. He's a little essentialist in these weird ways, but when we get to him, I think it'll be really interesting to revisit the category of the not all, which is what women occupy, and try and map it onto the non-binary. Because I think the best way to explain that before just reading Seminar 20 is like, um, 
at drag shows when drag this this is there's obviously fluidity in drag shows everywhere but just a little bit in general drag queens have a more normative look than drag kings so when a and i'm going to butcher this a little bit because i'm going to just say men and women just for uh clarity's sake when men dress as women there is a specific look that many of them are going for which is fine there's nothing wrong with that but what's interesting is when assigned female at birth people dress as men the signification goes wild it goes it goes not all it goes everywhere it goes all over the place and it's way more open just in general obviously there's drag queens who are doing so many cool things with that too but just in general that category when it flips you can see some of that openness come through Oh yeah, I I mean I saw it at like the the battles that we went to especially where we oh, yeah. watching, you know, the few of them are queens versus queens and then you've got some queens versus kings that there is very much a and I definitely think it's been changing with stuff like Dracula and stuff where they're starting to move more in towards like creativity outside of the drag look and what you can do with yeah the drag look yeah you're not where you, you know you like, have more drag things which is yeah another like category. The, i highly recommend anybody who is unfamiliar with dragula look up the xenomorph yeah drag is like one of the coolest costume things i've ever seen it's incredible yeah but um there's there's a very different um approach on like the king side that i don't know i'd be interested to see and i hope it i don't know i'm, I'm still not as familiar with this crowd i'm still new to this one too but yeah i mean drag queens have been around for a lot longer than kings at least in like the public sphere of, of course like, getting in the public you know, on a stage and whatnot mm -hmm. But, um, like what we've talked about in the, uh, the Foucault with once it, once it's established, once it gains its labels, does it begin to lose its creativity? Yeah. Is it that, like, does it I lose have its a, openness, right? I, I'd be really interested to see, like, you know, in a few years or, you know, 20 years down the road like mm -hmm. the evolution of it because you know unquestionably there is far more diversity in the features that they're accentuating yeah. the these various different approaches they have to presenting like masculine things is uh i don't know i I think it's a lot more fun, like it, and it's nice yeah. to see. I think you see a little bit more of the individual performer in in that approach than the um, than the way people choose to tweak the original look. Yeah. For you know, like the king side of stuff. So I I I definitely agree with you on that one. I... Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed. Reading some Anne Waters. I enjoyed mapping the gender constructs that Anne Waters wa gives us an example, but also is wanting us to shoot for. As I, a, you know, there's the a little bit of world. call to action in here. A little, I, there, is. there is a little bit of uh, movement beyond the discrete binary language. I think the call to action is dismantle the colonialist superstructure i mean i think yeah. it's a very gigantic and very Without ubiquitous aggressive language just, it's yeah it's gonna be it's awesome i think it'd be more she'd say absorb or set next to you know it would be that type of language instead of dominate yes it's not an either or it's a sometimes yes and sure no, yeah, why why not? It's just the mm -hmm. the collection is it's our spinning 
or it's spinning our, plates it's interacting our, with each other. It's our duty as spinning discs to yes. value the autonomy of the other in the way that she's outlining. And that's her ethics. And that's B.F. Cordova's ethics as well. They work together in this way. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Preston. That was very that was fun. Great. Thank you. That was a great choice. It was a good read. Thanks, everyone. Until next time.